Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 106. All right, San Diego Comic-Con, July 23rd, Nerdist Podcast Live at 4th and B, 8 p.m., with special guests Matt Smith and Karen Gillen from a little show called Doctor Who that I will not ever shut up about. Details at Nerdist.com. And a slew of Nerdist Industries-based podcasts will be dropping, I guess is the word. Podcast drop. Podcast from Kamal Nanjani and Allie Baker, who are doing a video game podcast called The Indoor Kids, Making It with Ricky Lindholm, the Nerdist Writer Series, hosted by Ben Blacker, Sex Nerd Sandra, The Todd Glass Show. So keep your eyes and or ears open for that information in the coming weeks. And now the Nerdist Podcast, episode number 106, with probably one of the coolest people I've ever met in my life, Mr. Neil Gaiman. Now entering... Nerdist.com Yeah, you can put it right there. So did Craig tell you that we got a chat last night? That I did a show? Yes, I knew. It was I all knew. your fault. No, I- <laughs> Everybody said, no, Chris said. I, apparently, interns have been suggesting me for like years. It um, was, I mean, it wasn't, a, it was not a difficult, uh, I started recording, by the way. Uh, it, it was not a, it wasn't like a difficult, I did the show one day and when I was coming out, I was like, you know you should have on? Neil Gaiman's awesome. I just did a panel with him uh, up at WonderCon and Craig was like, oh, I like him a lot. <laughs> and like, this is how, it's just, it's just so funny how... Sometimes things just don't have to be complicated, and it's... And also, never listen to interns. <laughs> and sometimes there are processes, and I'm sure you have, you have publicists and you have people that you work with, and there are channels, and they deal with other publicists, and it's just like, these processes just become so overly complicated. Well, the funny thing is that I, I've been saying no for so many years to doing um, chat shows. But I, th- I think the nice people at HarperCollins had assumed that I simply wasn't ever going to do them. Because, uh, you know, Letterman used to ask when I was doing Sandman. Really? Yeah, and I, and I, I said no several times. Because I thought that I didn't want to be more famous than I was. And I definitely didn't want people who I didn't know knowing my face and things like that. Um, but I, I sort of softened when it came to doing Stephen Colbert. Yes, <laughs> a few years ago, because that was about the Newbury and it's Colbert, and it was my son's favorite show. And this one, I just thought it was one of those weird moments of I watch Craig Ferguson. I like watching Craig Ferguson because he's a mad Doctor Who nut, and he likes the same things that I do. And this is going to be a really fun chat. Also, he'll just talk to you like a person. Like it's it's not going to be you're not going to you're not going to get stuck on a show with someone who doesn't know you or isn't familiar with your work and go so. Sandman is a guy made out of sand. You're like, no, it's not really. (laughs) Also, you know, you don't want to be, I mean, back then it would very much have been, um, so Neil, you write adult comics. (laughs) 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 You know know that it can't go to anywhere good because you're not on it to go to anywhere good. You're, you're, you're just on it to be the dancing monkey. Mm. Um, what I loved about the Craig thing is, is, all of my strange friends, it turns out, when I mentioned that I was going to do Craig's show, would inform me that they were, you know, his best friend. He has an awful lot of best friends. And, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I had Adam Savage interviewing me the other night in Berkeley. 
Oh, that's um, great. And, and mentioned after the thing. He's like, oh, Craig, I'm going to be doing the show on Friday. You've got to say hi from me and, and stuff. And I thought, this is so weird. And Tim mentioned and I were having dinner in Seattle a couple of days ago. So that it's like these weird networks of strangely geeky, nerdy people who have inherited the earth. There is a weird law of attraction. Well, Adam Savage is the reason that I met Ferguson because when we had Adam on, like you know, well over a year ago, we had him on the podcast and we did it live in front of an audience. And he and Craig were pals, and Craig came down and he enjoyed the show. And afterwards, he was like, "I want to do this." And we were like, "Okay," (laughs) but he's just the most affable, fun. You know, he'll riff with you. Yeah, I, I, I. There was a point last night where he started doing this tentacular impersonation of Jamie Heineman's mustache. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I started asking him whether, whether Jamie Heineman was actually Cthulhu. And I thought, <laughs> now it can be revealed. You take the mustache and off. I thought, <laughs> you couldn't do this on television with anybody else. No. The idea of going to these places and suddenly talking about H.P. Lovecraft or, or Daleks or... Listen, Ferguson let me take a camera crew to Gallifrey One, which is a Doctor Who convention in Los Angeles, and and we we went as we went about as deep as you can go down the Doctor Who hole. That didn't sound right. Uh, <laughs> it's bigger on the inside Chris. for network yeah. for network television. I mean, you know, like you're making is like talking about Peter Davison or making weeping angel jokes, and we're like, you can't do this on any other network show at all. I, I, but I think the fun of that is. The weird and wonderful thing now about, particularly about the internet, um, are these virtual communities. It's the idea that people who like stuff get to find other people who like stuff and eventually reach some kind of strange critical mass. Mm -hmm. You know, I suspect that if, if Craig's show had gone in some of those peculiar directions even 10 years ago, it's not that it wouldn't have worked it's not that it wouldn't have been funny it's that the people who would have liked it wouldn't have found it or each other or each other right and now we're in this weird world where they find each other and they get to tell each other you want to watch craig's show and that you know i, I the thing that's made me happiest on my twitter feed um this morning is the number of people actually sending messages to craig saying, I've never watched you before, but I stayed up and watched the Neil section last night, and your show is hilarious. I'm going to start watching it. Oh, that's so great. That that makes me happy. There is definitely, the internet has created much more of um, a social dynamic that I feel like is more akin to a lava lamp, where you just have these little tiny blobs just coming together and like, and then forming bigger blobs. And the truth is, I discovered Craig Ferguson's show through Mark Evanier's blog. Mark oh, wow. News From Me blog, which is, I think, probably, it's the only blog that I read through thick, through thin, even when I'm wandering off the internet, I still, you know, and I do it, sometimes I'll be reading it daily, sometimes I'll do like a monthly catch-up, mm-hmm. and just um, go and see what he's posting, but Mark is incredibly perceptive, and it's always... Um, you know, sensible, funny, informed stuff about animation, about TV, about what's going on in L.A., about occasionally about his plumber. 
Um, <laughs> I mean, I feel like an idiot. I've never read Mark Evanier's blog. I need to. I need to. I didn't know about it. That's. But that's why I'm here. I'm saying go and read Mark Evanier's blog. <laughs> uh, but he's been for years. He was fascinated. One of the things that fascinates him is late night TV and late night TV chat shows. And he was somebody. I followed through, rather than ever watch the sort of Leno-Letterman war stuff, I just mm -hmm. follow what was going on through Mark's blog. And when Craig, when I noticed that Mark was basically saying, Craig Ferguson is the only one I watch, everybody else I tape and fast, fast, you know, fast forward through, and I'm not even watching most of them, I thought, I have to start checking this out. Well, there's been an interesting, you know, if you sort of follow the history of, of, of late night chat shows, or afternoon chat shows, or what have you. You know, you see in the 60s, you know, in the 70s, you, you have Dick Cavett, who will just talk to people. They will just have conversations. I mean, he basically, you know, Dick kind of sets them up for stories. But you really get a sense of who people, yeah. you got a sense of who people were. Like the, the Betty Davis episode of uh, Dick Cavett is, is mind-blowing. She's incredible, and she gets to talk, and it's not segment, 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 done, go on to something else. It really, you really let it, you let it breathe, and then something happened, and it just everything became very commercial, and it was just like, yeah, you got a book, yeah, here's my book, okay, thanks for coming on, here's one joke I'll set you up for, and then get the fuck out of here, and it's all coming back around where guys like Fallon and Ferguson are just like, no, you can talk to people, and you can fuck around, and it doesn't have to be, you know, well, set you up and knock it down. What's funny about that is that uh, when Tom Snyder was still hosting the Late Late Show, and he was kind of being booted out. Uh, for Craig Kilborn to come in, he wrote a huge article talking about how um, he doesn't like the way late night talk shows are going. It's like he's like no one's talking to them anymore. They're just setting up. It's just all very regimented, and he he you know he didn't want to have anything to do with the business that was going to continue on like that. And it's kind of funny because he left, and then it just you know there, every every late night show was the exact same, the exact same, the exact same celebrities saying the exact same things about whatever they're working on. And I feel like with Craig is probably the crux and it's funny that it also happened on the late late show where he brought it back to that tom snyder style of just slowing it down and having a conversation and just like even in his monologues are just they're they're more real than anything else on late night tv they're not just jokes they're actual stories and actual uh, opinions on things well it was interesting because we shot the pilot last night for the nerdist tv show and craig there were just because it's a pilot, you know, there were a couple things and it was a, a, incredible and Craig was great and our special guest was great. But there were a couple like promos that we had to do and Craig, we, like we would go run through them once with what was scripted and Craig was like, oh, what do you mean we have to do this again? Like he's so it's so funny. You, you could tell like, oh, yeah, he just fucking does what he wants on his show and that's how he stays sane and it's magic. That was that was how it felt. And I love the way that it seems to be. Television definitely seems to be changing in some ways. And it sort of learning from itself. Um, the idea that a novelist would be on a late night chat show, not actually particularly to plug a book. I mean, I'm on tour, the end of a tour for, for the 10th anniversary edition of American Gods. Mm -hmm. That's going to sell lots of copies. And honestly, I didn't particularly care about blogging it to to Craig Ferguson's audience late at night. I was just there because it's fun. So, um, you know, and it throws you back to, to the days when you could actually just have a novelist on late night TV on a chat show because, they're, because people who write books 
some of us are really good at chatting. <laughs> um, you know, the days when Johnny Carson would have people, the days when Steve Allen, Dick Cabot, these, these you know, Norman Mailer and co just turning up to, yep. to talk. They'd be regulars. And then that changed. And you wound up with, you know, monosyllabic heiresses with perfume lines. Um, <laughs> that smell great. Yeah, well, we were, we were recording this in the building that was built on the backs of monosyllabic heiresses. Making for, this yeah. is the E-building, and it's just like, every time I turn a corner and I just see a friggin' Kardashian poster, I'm like, what are we doing? What are we doing? Yeah. But uh, I often think of Tom Snyder uh, as, I feel like he he's sort of one of the godfathers of the podcast dynamic. You think so? I, I mean, just the idea of just like, just talk. Talk about your day. Talk. Talk about. Talk about what yeah. interests you. Like it's more interesting to me. I, know, I mean, we all get it. People work on things, and we know, like, oh, you worked on this movie, and that was that director. Like, but I want to hear what people like. Like Neil Gaiman, I want to hear, like, what did you watch? Did you watch television when you were growing up at all, or were you were I, you more of a, a book guy? Um, I was probably more of a book guy than a TV guy because my parents weren't into TV. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was tiny. Like, you know, three, four, five, six, I was allowed to watch Children's Hour TV. Um, and it wasn't children, it wasn't like an hour, it was, you know, 15 minutes of bad puppet shows to watch with mother. Um, but my grandparents didn't care about that kind of thing. So I'd go over to their place and I'd watch Doctor Who. And that, you know, that, that, that lingered. And uh, actually discovered the Narnia books through the TV show. They, there was a bad English TV, you know, people mm-hmm. in man in a lion co- costume and stuff <laughs> like that. Um, but that was where I discovered a lot of things that I loved. Um, then we got a TV when I was about six or seven. And I loved TV. Um, Batman was was the big you know the big obsessional tv show absolutely i had no idea it was meant to be funny i have i <laughs> had no idea it was anything other i i would worry i would worry every <laughs> at the end of every same bat time say bat channel thing and they're they're you know floating off in a balloon and there is no way they'll ever get down and i would worry <laughs> and <laughs> Because I thought maybe this was it. I was young. I didn't understand that they had to be back I until never, it was cancelled. When I was a kid, it never occurred to me, as much of a follower of comedy as I was, it never occurred to me that they that, that show was tongue-in-cheek. I just I just always wrote it off as the 60s. I'm like, ah, yeah. they were weird and avant-garde back then, so everything I, everything was just yeah, weird. Yeah, I had no idea until I, I caught an episode on uh, Late Night TV, and it's, he says, like, hold on, let me get the bat pen. And I was like, bat pen? Wait a minute. Yes. And then it finally all clicked. Everything clicked. I, uh, it's, just, it's just like the Simpsons where where they, where, they, where um, Krusty goes, is on the old Batman show, and they're on the <laughs> carousel, and he's like, fortunately, I had my bat carousel reversal spray. <laughs> and then Krusty's like, geez, what don't you have in that belt? <laughs> I uh, was watching this show, Hollywood Treasures, where they auction off Hollywood memorabilia. I like auctions. Uh, and they had the uh, Robin sidecar for the Bat Cycle. Oh, crap. And they brought Burt Ward in to authenticate it. Yep. And he said the only line he would never say that they wanted him to say was, Holy strawberries, Batman, are we in a jam? Which I think <laughs> is actually one of their better I think that's puns. Yeah. Right? I like I, you know, it's, it's right up there with the great line... From the original Batman movie, 
Uh, some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> I recently saw a picture of someone. Uh, there was a, a, a sign for a church that said uh, "Holy Family Church," and then someone just put really big underneath it, "Batman." <laughs> <laughs> Holy Family Church, <laughs> Batman. <laughs> Did you have you watched the have you watched the Tim Burton Batman movie recently? Recently, no. I I, I was at the premiere of all those years ago. Yeah. Um, actually, it wasn't a premiere. I wasn't at the premiere. I was at some being invited uh, to screening before it actually opened. Oh, that was I, right around when you started doing Sandman, right? Um, yeah, it was a bit before. I, I The first sort of big meeting that I had um, with DC, I was invited um, a few days later to to be on the bus with the DC Comics people going out to Gotham City, which in this case was Pinewood Studios. <laughs> of course. Uh, where, so um, and we were shown around Pinewood, and um, it was, you know, Dave McKean and I were there, and we're just sort of looking around very nervously because we're, we're the kids, and I mean, there's all these people here who mm-hmm. have, you know, Dave, Dave Gibbons is there, and John Byrne, and these people who, who really write comics, and we're just these kids who want to. And I remember Anton First, um, who was the designer gave us a talked us through their inspirations and their comic inspirations and where things came from and and um he reminded me so much of the comics character mr x who was this mad bald obsessed guy obsessed with city planning and so it came as strangely no surprise when anton first threw himself off a building and and committed suicide and a plunging from the top of a building to a parking lot Oh. Um, some months after, I thought you, that that seems very appropriate. He seems, like, he seems semi-fictional at the time. It's like Jonas Doe, he died doing what he loved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> falling off a building. <laughs> um, did you? Would you start it with this? So, you, as you love the oh, first of all, who was your doctor when you were growing up? Was it was it Tom Baker? Uh, no, my doctor was Patrick Troughton. I'm old. Oh? <laughs> I really, I really am old. I, I saw, I didn't see an unearthly child. Okay. Um, but I came in for Daleks, the mm-hmm. end of the first Daleks story, and sort of remember it, but don't really remember it in that solid sense of I, I know I have memories that are that. But the first Doctor Who story that I have memories of, um, and I already loved it, were the Zabi, uh, the web planet. And I, I remember being you know, hiding behind the sofa from the Zabi. Um, <laughs> and these weird high-voiced things called the Monoptera. And the Web Planet's the only DVD that I haven't bought and haven't gone back and re-looked at because I have these memories of how incredibly terrifying it was. Oh, and you don't want to. And I know that they will go away. I know that I will be going, no, it's clunky puppetry and a man <laughs> in a giant ant suit and stuff. I, I, this, this will not terrify me. So I'm, I haven't rewatched that. That's kind of, that was kind of my thing with Batman earlier is I, I rewatched the, the Tim Burton Batman, which I thought, <clears throat> I mean, that was one of those, that was one of those movies where I was like, oh my God. And then when the, when, you know, when the, when the, the bat plane goes up against the moon. You're yeah, like, yeah. It and I watched it again recently. And I'm like, oh, it doesn't. It just it feels. It just doesn't. It feels very 80s. Yeah. You know, you're. You're. Well, Batman was in the 80s. What do you want? Sometimes you're allowed not to go back. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's okay. And and the joy for me with Doctor Who actually has been how much has been really good. And actually, the fact that. 
particularly for me with Patrick Troughton. Troughton was my doctor. I had that, <clears throat> the thing, that emotional bump that you always get when it's a new doctor, um, or at least you always get when you're new to the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and William Hartnell, William Hartnell kind of, you know, he was the doctor, but he, right. he was still somebody who slightly scared me. <laughs> I was creepy old man. He was a creepy old man, and, and, and he was testy, and he was grumpy, and I sort of liked him, but I didn't really want him to be my grandfather, and I definitely didn't want to go in that TARDIS with him. Um, <laughs> but Patrick Troughton came in, and he was the doctor, and he was funny. And he was nice, and he was silly, and he wasn't taking this whole thing seriously, except he was. And he was actually smarter than everybody else, and they all underestimated him, because he was just this funny man, and he'd pull out his recorder and stuff like that. And, and yet, somehow, he just saved the Earth from Cybermen again. <laughs> <laughs> and it was brilliant. And he was my doctor. And I remember the, the thing that sort of pretty much moved the furniture inside my head in that way that, that every now and then there's something you can point to and you can say, this changed me. Mm-hmm. I was not the same person after this than I was before, was the War Games. And the War Games was a 10-part Doctor Who serial. And it was 10 parts long because they had no idea what they were doing. They didn't know if they were going to end it. They didn't know um, if it, they were going to cancel it. They really weren't sure where they were going, but they were just going to keep the War Games going, which means that the story was, especially in the middle, absolutely interminable. It's just, you know, <laughs> our companions get captured, they go and get them back. They get captured again. Now you're in some other weird... The command, were the companions in some sort of plane crash and ended up on an island for four or five seasons? And it then, it yeah. felt like it. It had that, that glorious sort of, this is going to go on forever thing. But then when the story actually came together and suddenly you met somebody who identified himself as one of the doctor's people and you discovered there were time lords and you discovered that the doctor really was on the run from them and they could remotely control his tardis and control time so he couldn't get away and then this this marvelous sequence where you know they 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 pronounce judgment on him and inform him that he is going to be changing and his face is going to change i just remember watching that that whole sequence and going, oh my gosh, this thing that I've been watching since I was tiny. And, and at this point, I'm nine years old. Um, this thing I've been watching since I was three had a big, huge story arc behind it that I didn't know and didn't understand. And there were all these people in the background. And it, it was huge and wonderful and strange. Although it does make me wonder how much, <clears throat> how much of the things we go back and look at as the canon for Doctor Who, it's like, well, they just did that because some guy at BBC wasn't sure if they were going to continue doing the show. Um, you know, canon becomes canon however it becomes canon. I guess canon. that's true. And, um, you know, there, there, are, there are lines and jokes and things in my episode that became The canon Doctor's of, Wife. Of the Doctor's Wife. I loved it. Oh, thank you. I was so excited. When we did the thing at WonderCon and I saw the clip and then it was just that moment where... Matt Smith's like, thousands of time lords. So I'm like, what? <laughs> like, it was just so 
I, I mean, I called, was, yeah. I, call, I called Matt, and I, I called Matt Myron. I was like, oh, my God, I just saw a clip. Uh, it's the fourth episode of the new series. Uh, Neil Gaiman wrote it. It looks fucking incredible. I, mean, like, I, was, I, felt, like, I felt like an old 1930s reporter rushing the to the phone. I love the, the thing about that, showing that clip that we showed at WonderCon, which is the clip where he, he meets the Ood, he fixes the box, he hears the Time Lord voices, and then they're going off, and he turns to his companions, and he says, somewhere around here, there are lots and lots of Time Lords. And... Um, with the strange thing was I'd met um, the guys from the BBC along with Mark Shepard and Tony Haynes mm-hmm. at breakfast that morning. And I'd said, by the way, what, what, what are we showing? And they said, oh, we're going to do this clip where um, the doctor goes and opens the box and sees all the Time Lord voices and says, oh, I really thought I had some friends around here. And I said, hang on, that's, that's the big twist that gives away the entire <laughs> plot of the first half. It's a good episode, thing you asked. And you're going to be showing that. And they said, yeah. And I said, no, you're not. You are not actually showing that. And I, I emailed from the breakfast table, the BBC, and uh, wonderful Beth Willis, the producer. And I said, ah. And she said, whatever you want, you can you Oh, can that's show. great. And um, I had the episode on, um, on a flash drive. In my pocket. I yes. know because I you showed it. You showed yeah. me the flash drive, and well, I was like, I wonder how fast his reflexes are. <laughs> on that, so I took that flash drive in and said to them, "I want you know play it from here to here." And that was that was where they got the scene that they put up. And I, I was really worried that the 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 resolution wasn't going to be good enough for for giant screens, but it was fine. Oh yeah, and the crowd. I mean, there were thousands of people there. Everyone went freaking bananas. That was, the, uh, that was the episode I was up last week. My boxers with tears in my eyes. Oh, that was the one. Yeah. Matt, Matt just said last night, he was like, I was watching Doctor Who last week in my boxers in the middle of the night, just crying. And I'm like, which episode? I didn't, I didn't realize it was Doctor Who. Yeah, uh, when she says hello. When they're, in the, when they're trapped in the TARDIS and she finds Rory's body. Oh, Spoiler alert. Well, no spoiler alert. By the time, come on, people. It's, it's been out for whatever it is, two months now. Yes. Yeah. I haven't been able to catch up yet don't worry oh it's all right that's fine i just uh, that didn't really give anything away but it's a it's a fantastic episode and also just it's such a unique twist on a prominent relationship in the show that's never really addressed that much i i felt so lucky to be able you were talking before about making things canon i got to make it canon (laughs) you did um, you affected the, fu- the future of every episode by creating a specific reality. But I also kind of got to change the past as well. That, that's what I meant about the thing that the end of the war games did for me, because it reshaped everything that had happened up to that point. And the lovely thing about doing my episode is now if you go back and there's a scene and there's you know, just a scene in the TARDIS or with the TARDIS in the background, or one of those scenes where the, the TARDIS has vanished or... You know where he's where he's saying, "Well, I, okay, if I get killed, what'll happen is it's just going to become a police box, or whatever." Um, it means something different. That once you've seen my episode, the shape of that relationship going back changes as well as coming forward. Yeah, it gives it gives it a soul. Like it, it's like you really. And what's kind of fun about that is, as a as a fanboy. You know, whatever whatever things were never intended originally from old episodes, you'll start writing things in like, oh, that must be this and this and that. You know, so it actually creates more of the world. You know, and, and the strange thing about that, I mean, is is we're going the the 
part of the inspiration. One of the things I went back and rewatched and rewatched and rewatched um, in in the final writing process was an episode, Edge of Destruction, from one of the very, very first William Hartnell episodes where they're stuck in the TARDIS and weird stuff is happening and it turns out the TARDIS is trying to communicate to them and doesn't really know how, but but to let them know they pushed the wrong button and it's held <laughs> down. It's trying. It's a, you know they're heading back to the beginning of time. Did you feel that um, when they first said when they approached you and said, "Hey, you want to write a Doctor Who episode?" Are you the kind of guy that was like, "Yes, I'm so on that," or were you or were you the, or were you more like, "Oh, they, they okay, I'll do it," but that's uh, uh, no, no, I not nervous about it. Nervous. I, no, I wasn't nervous. I, I was somebody who had spent um, about a decade at that point, maybe a bit more. Yeah, more. Uh, almost two decades. With people writing me to me uh, when they were doing the Virgin New Adventures, mm-hmm. when they did the Telos books, people saying, will you write a Doctor Who episode uh will you write a doctor who novel will you write a doctor who novella will you do a doctor who thing and i would say no i I don't want to write a doctor who original doctor who novel or or whatever but if they ever bring back doctor who i want to write a doctor who episode and had actually back at the end of 2003 just made a phone call to um the bbc just to say no if, if anyone doing anything with doctor who could i could i maybe get involved or, or do something um, just because I loved it. And it was, as far as I was concerned, languishing. And then I heard no Russell's bringing it back. And I thought, Oh good. It's, it's going to be in good hands. Um, didn't wind up checking it out because I was in the U S um, and running around in 2005. And then Jane Goldman, um, who wrote Stardust and Kick-Ass and, and the X-Men movie recently, um, just said you would really like this and got me the dvds because they were bringing out the dvds pretty much as the show Mm -hmm. was coming out in in the uk um so i played the dvds went my daughter would love this she was 12 and suddenly we had something we could do watch together which made it even more fun and more exciting and then i was going back and getting old dvds to show her and we're sitting there watching city of death and showing her the three doctors and the five doctors oh, wow. because it was a nice way of sort of giving her an idea of, of, of the whole shape of Doctor Who. Um, and I was talking about it on my blog and just doing mini reviews and talking about, you know, the, the, how moving and powerful it was that at the end of Doomsday, Maddie, my daughter, was watching it with her head on my chest. And, and she got up. And my chest was soaked, and I realized she'd just been silently crying with these floods of tears running down her face. That's what Matt would have done if you were, if you, if you were cradling him. Let's I, watch it. I, I, and I, but I loved that. I, and I, I thought that was so... I thought that something could have that amount of emotional power. It was just so wonderful. And that it could join the generations. So... I'd been saying nice things. I think I was the first person to call... Um, Hugo Award for Girl in the Fireplace and then for Blink. I'm pretty sure, you know, put it up and Stephen Moffat got them. And uh, at some point in there, 
we had some mutual friends. I think Paul Cornell. Um, and Paul put Stephen and I in touch, and we went off to have dinner. And by that point, through mysterious underground things, I'd sort of heard that Stephen Moffat was going to be taking over as the, the Ood father. Mm-hmm. And that he would be, um, you know, the, the head honcho. So, but I also heard it was a secret. So we're sitting there having dinner place called Bar Shu, a wonderful Chinese restaurant in London. We're talking very hypothetically, and I'm saying things like, you know, hypothetically speaking, um, should somebody uh, who did Doctor Who be in a position to ask me hypothetically <laughs> to write one? Obviously, I would, hypothetically. Um, and, and somewhere around the middle of the meal, Stephen, who, who is Scottish and has a marvelously low bullshit back there, just sort of said, look, you know that I'm taking over Doctor Who. <laughs> and I know that you know. So let's just cut to the thing. You want to write an episode, don't oh, you? Oh, that's I'm going, Yes, great. I want to write an episode. <laughs> this is like, um, it's almost like the, like the date you're on a date and you just like yawn and put your arm around the girl. She's like, you're trying to touch my boobs. Oh my gosh. Um, okay. It's, it was actually that place <laughs> and was really brought home to me how much that place it was when um, I ran into Richard Curtis who wrote uh, Vincent and the Doctor and is probably much more famous for Four Weddings and a Funeral and mm-hmm. Love Actually and things, and who I'd known forever, um, with Stephen Moffat down at the studios in Cardiff last year, um, actually when they were editing Vincent and the Doctor. And Richard said, so, Neil, he said, uh, you know, was it, it must have been uh, like it was for me with you, with uh, Moffat just pursuing you and pursuing you to try and get you to write an episode. How 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 did they wear you down? How did they get you, Neil? I said, oh, I just said yes. I said, just like, yeah, I want to write an episode. Of did, it, did anything you wrote not make it in, or was it was it pretty true to what you know? Like, was the finished product where you're like, yes, this is exactly how I envisioned this? Um, huge quantities of stuff that I wrote didn't make it through. But that's the nature of the beast. Um, and mostly, I think it was for the better. Um, the first draft, or the first version, of the episode that I wrote, actually began with... Um, it originally began with Amy and the Doctor, because this was going to be during one of those periods where Rory didn't exist. Um, Amy and the Doctor trying to get to a Beatles concert. And they they, they were going to, they they were backstage at Shea Stadium and heading towards the Beatles and and the doctor's sort of explaining that he still thinks they should have gone off to Hamburg because (laughs) they were much, much better in Hamburg. That's where you want to see the Beatles. And Stu Sutcliffe, great bass player, (laughs) and and really, really good at running away from Ogrons. And so you've got all this stuff. And then they turn a corner, they're almost at the Beatles, and and the box appears. And they run back to the TARDIS. You know, they get the message from the message box and head off. And when the, tar- when the TARDIS vanishes, you see a large sign saying that this is actually Wembley Stadium in 1986, and it's Queen. Oh, <laughs> they would go, they'd been going to the wrong place anyway. Um, and, then, <laughs> and then it was pretty much the same um, for a while. The, it was much scarier because separating Amy from the Doctor 
with with Nevu, who at that point wasn't an Ood. He was just huge, scary, sort of patchwork creature. Um, and Nevu and Nevu basically playing this horrible, deadly game of hide and seek with her through the inside of the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. So I think it would have been much darker and much scarier. Um, and we hadn't got the end quite right at that point, too. Or at least it wasn't that we hadn't got the end quite right, but the the idea was that it was going to be the episode was where the lodger was going to be. So it was going into um, the Big Bang. We knew the TARDIS was going to be destroyed. And essentially, this was her goodbye to him. So it's much darker, the... The feeling, and, and at the end, they, they buried Idris's body, and they put up a marker, and it's just Amy and the Doctor sitting on a hill, and Amy is actually kind of slightly traumatized by what's happened, and mm-hmm. the Doctor's just sitting there making a daisy chain for her, and and it, it was this... And then when... Basically, we didn't have the money to make it, um... The BBC had the money to make The Lodger. <laughs> so they made The Lodger. And my episode got bounced. Which was wonderful. Because by getting it bounced, I now had Rory. Right. And the whole dynamic of the thing changed. Um, having Rory gave me... Well, apart from anything else, it gave me Amy and Rory, which was great. It gave me Rory and the Doctor, which was great. It gave me somebody else's point of view... Um, meant I could do a whole bunch of very different things once we got into the TARDIS with, with Amy and Rory. And some of them got in and some of them didn't. You know, there were, there were things that were... Many of the things were filmed. Um, there were things we just lost. The, 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 Rory, and the Rory getting locked in the Zero Room was my favorite, um, where he basically... House informs Rory that, you know, being in the Zero Room for more than because it completely cuts you off from any contact with anything outside of the mm-hmm. rest of the universe for Time Lords to rejuvenate, um, to recuperate, it will actually drive a human being mad within two minutes to be locked in one, and then the door closes. Ugh. And uh, how he gets out is, is, <laughs> is glorious. Um, there was a scene in the TARDIS swimming pool. Oh, that's <laughs> Which we lost um, for, um, for, for, for two reasons. The biggest reason, or the initial reason, was that Karen can't swim. Oh, <laughs> really? And Which I found so ridiculous because I don't know if you've, I mean, you've, you've encountered Karen. Oh, yes, I have. Okay, you've seen her legs. I mean, <laughs> she does not have legs that human beings have. And... I, I think until they tip televisions on their side, <laughs> nobody is going to appreciate what Karen's legs are like. And, They're and, very and long, right? They it's like are she's... ridiculously long. They go, they start somewhere almost immediately under her shoulder blades and go down. And, <laughs> and I'm going, how can you not swim with legs like that? All she'd have to do is move them, and she would zoom through the water like some kind of motorboat. Um, but apparently Karen can't swim, so they said, can you not do it? And I said, well, could I, could I change it so that it, it's Rory in the water? And then they said, well, you could, but really we can't afford to shoot. The oh, there, so it's moot. So I was like, oh, okay. We can't afford to have Karen's legs shortened, and we can't. <laughs> so we lost the whole shortening Karen's legs. Yes. And, um, 
and the 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 idea of having a swimming stunt double and and so and we lost the hall of mirrors scene you know there were scenes that we simply didn't get in there um but that's that's the nature of television it, it's it's all about time it's all about budget once it was shot they put together a rough cut and it came in at 56 minutes so lots of scenes um uncle and auntie had lots of scenes that were really funny spooky weird moved the plot forward and were great where you got background on what was happening and all of those scenes went because actually it worked fine without them mm-hmm. um you had um you had a, a probably my favorite little scene which is replaced by something just as good is really odd the the originally when the doctor and idris get back to um they they get to where they think there are going to be tardises he says there's a you know it's, it's a tardis graveyard junkyard let's let's go and they go and they all they can see is junk and then Idris points out that obviously all they can see is junk because all TARDISes have their chameleon circuits activated and when they die, the chameleon circuit remains on because you, couldn't, you didn't want TARDISes falling into enemy hands. So right. as far as you're concerned, it's still a bathtub <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> I and, love a bathtub TARDIS. <laughs> and he, he has her change things. And, you know, deactivate all chameleon circuits around them. And suddenly all of these bathtubs and washing machines and just bits of junk become high-tech gloriousness just for a moment. And you realize what they are. And then they go back to being junk. And he goes back to reassembling. And they, they assemble the thing out of junk. And it was lovely. And they filmed it. But it was too long. And it could go. So it went. And I had to write that the dialogue between them where they're standing looking down at the the junked TARDISes, where he's saying, you know, you, it's impossible. Where she says to him, this is what you're planning to do. And he's saying, yes, but Rory and Amy are still alive. And, and she says, you don't care that it's impossible. You're, this is what you're going to do and you don't care. And it's a, it's a lovely scene. And nobody ever watches that and goes, oh, I missed the one that was there. And that's how things become canon. They become canon because they make it in and they survive. It's, it's a relentless... Network television is relentlessly Darwinian. Well, also, oh yes, there's there's no question, there's absolutely no question, and it, and you know, so and to some extent, and I personally, I think we're going through a television renaissance. I think there's a lot of phenomenal programming on uh, cable cable television right now, but a lot of it is very Darwinian in terms of like, well. Listen, you know, if if more people watched this one show, then it it would be on more. And, you know, unfortunately, more people watch the reality show. And that's why, you know, but I think that's that's where we're getting these smaller cable channels that are like, well, we don't have to perform like networks do. So we'll just kind of make the programming we we want to make. Um, but I'm curious to know, just because, you know, you write in all manner of media, um, the difference between... Uh, you know, writing writing comics, writing a, writing a novel, uh, and then and then writing for television, and then the follow up the follow up question to that, Mister Gaiman, is: Do you feel like it's important to? Some people think like, oh, I don't want anyone, I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. I want to write whatever I want. And personally, I feel like it's important to not have complete autonomy sometimes because those sort of roadblocks that television provides kind of force you to think outside the box a little bit. So, what do you prefer? I the truth is all. 
media come with their roadblocks. And it's always the walls that, that force you to create something really interesting inside the walls. I, the, the only things that I never do for people are the things where they come to me and they say, you can do whatever you <laughs> It's horrifying. And I never do. Whereas if somebody comes to me and says, Neil, um, we're doing an anthology about cats and William Shakespeare. And uh, it was just stories about some way a cat and William Shakespeare. Could, could you do one of those for us? And I go, no, that sounds really silly. And then I'll go home and then I'll go, you know, you could do this really great story. About <laughs> and I go and write it because you've suddenly been given parameters and the parameters are the thing you bounce off to mm -hmm. create art. So, but one of the ways that I keep my sanity and I've kept my sanity on this is by being able to move from thing to thing. So with a novel, for example, nobody gets to tell me what to do. It's as long as I write something of a publishable length, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, as long as I'm not turning in a four million word novel or something like that right. and demanding that it all be published as, as one thing, um, they'll publish it. It's good. Nobody cares. But it's really lonely. Um, so once I've done that, it's really fun to go off and make a movie or do TV or something like that. But when you're doing that, you're suddenly up against weird compromises. Right. And they're the weird compromises of what you can create and the weird compromises of, of what reality gives you and, and budget and time, which are the things you're, you're always battling. And the fact that somebody can tell you what to do and somebody can say, no, nah, you know, um, I know that it's meant to be a romantic ghost thriller comedy, but I really was hoping that it would, the, the whole ghost thing would be a little spookier. Can you up the ghost quotient and just tone down the romance or whatever? And you go, oh, yeah, okay, I can. But you're the one paying, and, I, and you go away and do it. Um, but after doing that, it's really fun to say, I'm going to go off and do something where nobody can tell me what to do, and yeah. you go back and do a novel or do a poem or, or, or whatever. By the way, uh, Ghost Quotient uh, is the name of my specials cover band. Come on, that's a call out to Paul and Storm. You've done Wootstock. Oh, I've done Wootstock. How I've done, fucking I've done great Wootstock. is Wootstock? Wootstock is remarkable. I've done my favorite Wootstock, actually, um, was not the one that I actually went on and did stuff at. My favorite Wootstock was the Minneapolis Wootstock, where I was not a guest, I was not announced. And they brought me on as a special guest at the, the moment in The Captain's Wife Lament, mm -hmm. where it had already been going on for about 24 minutes. <laughs> and um, <laughs> then they brought me on, and I did a respectable author R. Mm -hmm. And then went off again to rapturous applause. <laughs> and it was, it was just one of those great moments. And, and so I got to see all this, the backstage goings-on at Wootstock, which actually are the real reason why people do Wootstock. People think we do it because Paul and Storm pay us millions. <laughs> right. And, um, and clearly think, not, uh, not the case. Which is really not the case. And nope. they think we do it because, um, you know, this, this huge audience or whatever. And no, the actual reason we do it is to hang around backstage. Um, it's the conversations that occur between all of these people who've been admirers of each other or have wanted to meet and have never actually had a chance. So suddenly you're backstage making new friends, um, and occasionally coming down to the stage to watch Adam Savage desperately sticking 
tissues up his nose um, to staunch the flow of blood while singing uh, I Will Survive in the character of Gollum. <laughs> which, that's what it, that is what it's really about, Wootstock. It is, it, is, it is all the hanging out backstage and also just never knowing in each city who's going to be able to go. It's almost like, a, it's almost like getting a, a pack of plank of, um, of trading cards. You're like, what, is, what am I going to get this time? I know whatever it is, I know it's going to be awesome. But those guys are those guys are so great, and they've done such a they've done such an amazing job um, with the with the Woodstock show. Do you? Uh, I, first of all, you do live in Minnesota. I, I live up near Minneapolis. Minneapolis yeah. is a phenomenal town for live performance. I have had some of my most favorite shows in Minneapolis for stand up comedy shows. They are friendly. They're a friendly audience. They actually kind of they don't start from a point of view of folding their arms and going, yeah. <laughs> no, we just, we reserve that on the West Coast. <laughs> well, the West Coast, actually, I don't think it's folded arms. West Coast is, is hands deeply thrust into pockets and standing near the exit. So if this thing is not cool enough, right. you can sidle out and pretend you were never there to begin with. You also don't have people in the West Coast. The other problem with performing in LA is that so many people are performers that a lot of people will just watch and go, yeah, I would have done that differently. Like people in Minneapolis yeah. just go, I'm going to go consume a fun thing. And even, you know, Minneapolis comedians will laugh at jokes. Yes. West Coast comedians. I, I, you know, I don't know if you've ever had the horribleness of having to go to a comedy show with comedians. Oh, But you sit constantly. there in the audience and they go, and, and a really great joke comes out. And they all go, huh. <laughs> and that's the noise they make. And, and they smile a little bit. There's a, huh. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's and it's this weird filing process. You can see it went in there, and they're deconstructing it, reconstructing, going, "Yes, that worked." That yes, was good. Uh, the, the, yeah. The verbal equivalent is, oh, "I see what you did there." Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, I got it. But I'm a laugher. Like I, I I'm a laugher because I love comedy, and I still it thrills me to be to to be surprised by like you did uh, you did the thing at the Savant Theater last last night with Patton, and Patton is one of those guys who. Every time you see him, he's got 20 new minutes you've never seen before, and it constantly surprises you. Paula Tompkins is another one. Yeah. And um, how, how did it go last night with Patton, by the way? Patton um, is amazing. Patton is really, really funny. And he, he was, it was like schizophrenia. Because on the one hand, you have Patton desperately wanting to be Patton Oswalt, stand-up comedian comedy legend mm-hmm. and on the other hand you have Patton desperately wanting to be Patton Oswald, the guy who got his copy of Season of Mist signed by me in 1991 <laughs> in comics experience and who then came and saw me with, with Brian Persain uh, him and Brian were, were at the stinking rose in 1999 when I did a reading for the comic book Legal Offense Fund, he got his stuff signed and, and, and this slavering, drooling, ecstatically <laughs> happy fanboy. Fanboy makes good. News so, at 11. <laughs> so what I did, uh, we, we were, the interview was, was enormously fun. Um, but I thought, you know, I know Patton now well enough to know that my experience up on that stage, he, he's going to make me work for it because he's incredibly funny and he will always go to strange and inappropriate places. Um, so Let's see if I can actually take advantage of that and use that and have some fun with that. So I got um, Zelda Williams, mm-hmm. who is a wonderful young actress, um, and Patton 
And I said to them before the show, I said, well, you know, Zelda, will you come back? I, I'd like you to actually um, take part in something. And Patton, when I do my reading tonight, it's going to be an LA-specific reading. It's going to be a scene from American Gods. It's actually set in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. And um, I want... I will do... We'll make it like a full-cast audio. It'll be like the thing... It'll be actually where the, the recent full-cast audio of, of American Gods began, which was Kevin Smith interviewing me and my glorious wife, Amanda Palmer. Oh, I love um, Amanda Palmer. She is... Amanda fucking Palmer. Amanda fucking Palmer. Um, and Kevin interviewed us for his star-fucking... Uh, I think it was star-fucking smodcast. Um, and I thought I have to do something weird and mad at the end, so I forced them to read. It's the, the scene at the end of the first chapter of American Gods where a prostitute and a John <laughs> are having sex and she gets him to worship her and he slowly disappears into her vagina and never to be seen again. Um, it's one of those scenes that you write at the beginning of a book where you're going, you know, Anyone who doesn't want to read this should stop now. It's at the end of chapter one. It probably nothing weirder will happen for the rest of the book, but you have no excuse to get halfway through and say that book was just weird and bad things happen. Chapter one, word 15 is fuck. End of chapter one, man disappears in the prostitute's vagina. Stop now if you have a problem. That's Red Fox used to open his shows in Vegas that way. He'd come out and he'd go, shit, pee-pee, doo-doo. If anyone has a problem with that, get the fuck out. Exactly. <laughs> that was, that was, that was my, my, that was how I started that book. Um, so I had Patton and, and Zelda reading the part of the prostitute who is the goddess, uh, the queen of Sheba, actually, Dilquis, and, and the John. And, uh, Patton did amazingly well, um, although at the point where he's actually worshipping her, he started bouncing up and down on the stage like a small, demented rubber ball. And then he decided to continue his acting by, by slowly hiding himself behind Zelda's chair, getting lower and lower and lower, and then vanishing down beneath it. <laughs> Into um, her vagina. So it was... Um, I think I can safely and comfortably say... That it was a dramatic performance, the like of which nobody in the 1,500 seats uh, sitting there in the Seban Theatre has ever seen before, <laughs> nor, nor perhaps will ever see again. Probably the first uh, disappearing vagina uh, into a vagina bit at the Saban. At least in, the in, in, in its done. history. At least that, yes. Well, it's yes. Beverly Hills. So That's true. In the building, you, you we'll say. But outside the building, we don't know. Um, and, and then what, are you allowed to talk about anything that's going on with American Gods? I can tell you a little bit. There isn't an awful lot to tell yet. Um... Really, it, it's one of those... There's, there's weird stuff that always goes on in Hollywood. And one of the weird things I have discovered is that you have people who um, earn essentially 100 bucks a pop. And normally in like, you know, contract departments and mail rooms and things like that, by letting places like TMZ and the various gossip sites know stuff that's going on. Sure. And they get their tips. So the truth about the American Gods HBO series that we're doing with Playtone is we weren't planning to say anything at all except um, about, you know, 
two months ago, somebody did a huge and fairly accurate, there were a few things they got wrong, but they did a huge and fairly accurate leak shortly after HBO had given us a verbal green light. So now contracts are being put together. We're almost at the end of contract. And somebody at Playtone gave an interview in Singapore, possibly not realizing that if you give an interview to somebody in Singapore, it will be around the world in minutes. We do have so, that ability now where information it, uh, can get everywhere, it, it turns out. Pigeons. Exactly. <laughs> Carrier pigeons. So as a result of which, um, there is a lot of stuff out there that the public knows about. So I'm sort of going, well, I don't really feel that weird talking about things. I'm not going to tell anybody anything that isn't out there already. Yeah. Um, Bob Richardson, the the most wonderful person with a camera in pretty much the history of movie making. This is the guy who got his Oscars, um, who shot Natural Born Killers, um, you know, lots of Oliver Stone stuff, lots of Quentin Tarantino, um, Snow Falling on Cedars. It's an amazing, you know, IMDb list is going to be directing. Wow. Um, and he has ideas about the way that it looks. And he's also, you know, written a first draft script, um, which is, you know, it's solid. But he wrote it originally as a movie script to show us that he wanted to do a movie. And so we're going to have to slow it down a lot. Are you, um, are you impatient at all? I mean, it seemed, you, seem like a fairly, you seem like a fairly patient guy in terms of, eh, it's been 10 years and, and you, have to go, you have to wait for all the attorneys and you have to, you know. I'm completely patient. All of this stuff I get very, very patient on um, because I don't care. <laughs> I, 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 is that I, the secret? Yeah, actually, in some ways it is. Oh, I care about the right things, I think. Like I don't, what? I, well, I'd like to see things be good. That, <laughs> that is that, that's, that's, unheard that's, of in the entertainment business. Uh, Caroline, the... Um, the, Gor- the, gorgeous movie, and I, I and also kudos to your includement. Uh, inc- includement. What's not? You're including of John Hodgman. Like I, I I I mashed up include and Hodgman together. I got to the end of the sentence Goodman. before I, the meet. There there are, there are no words in the English language that are not actually improved by mashing John Hodgman <laughs> yeah. somehow. Anything the, you know, good Hodgman morning. Good good oh. Hodgman morning. Um, that was the know, best Hodgman orgasm I've ever had in my life. Exactly. It, it's just you you just want to mash Hodgman into your sentences, just as you want to mash him into your breakfast cereal. Yes. <laughs> you know, mash him into your life. You well, want Hodgman's not I just for like, breakfast anymore. I would, love, I would love Hodgman as my personal butler. He would be great. Well. I'd, I'd just like to get up and, and have Hodgman glide in and say, <laughs> good morning, Neil. Here's your newspaper. And so-and-so is on the phone. I would say, thank you, Hodgman. Okay. <laughs> say, You're very welcome, sir. And he'd glide away. Only, only his mustache is currently scary. It, the, the mustache is, is a little bit scary, but Hodgman to me is essentially what... He's like the embodiment of the bat computer in my mind. Like he, like I'm not, conv- I'm not convinced that he's not actually a hologram that just possesses the sum total of human knowledge. Yes, and it's not the old-fashioned sum total of human knowledge vis-a-vis true things that actually exist. It's a much better sum total of human knowledge <laughs> because it's from from Earth Hodgman. Yes. Um, the one where hobos still rule and it's, 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 and where Hodgman knowledge is so much finer than any other knowledge anywhere. It's very Hodgmanian. I've completely forgotten what we were talking about. Oh, Caroline. Um, so I signed the contract with Henry Selleck 
to do that film in uh, February 2001. And I think it was nine years to the day before um, before the film premiered. Wow. I, I, but eight years to the day. Um, but I was perfectly happy to wait because what I wanted was a good film. I really loved Henry Selleck's work. I was probably the only person on the planet who had noticed that even though the film was called Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas... Tim Burton was simply a producer on the film and actually it was directed and from all the interviews had been built from the ground up yeah. by Henry Selleck. Hollywood branding. Um, yeah. It would only ever upset me when we'd put from the director of The Nightmare Before Christmas on things and people come up to me and say, why are you trying to sell this as a Tim Burton film? <laughs> I got it and I go, no, actually, Henry Selleck directed The Nightmare Before Christmas. And they go, Really? <laughs> and why is it called Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas? <laughs> it was just sad. Like um, trying to challenge you, like, no, I think I know how this all works. But I was very, very happy to wait as long as it took to get it made and get it right and have it with Henry because I would rather have something that I can be proud of and love and say, yeah, it's great, um, than I would have something that came out and was terrible. That was always my position with Sandman. I, I, I've seen Sandman scripts come and go. I've seen Sandman directors hired and fired. I've seen it, it, you know, be a priority at Warner's. I've seen it be forgotten. Currently, they're looking at doing it as a TV series, and and I hope it happens. But what I say to them all is, look, I would much rather no Sandman was made than a bad Sandman. Mm-hmm. It's that's nice and easy. It's simple. That's that's my. My equation on this. I want it to be good. You saw the so, Matrix co-op the name Morpheus, whatever. You know, the, 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 the Wachowskis are huge Sandman fans. Clearly. And, uh, and, they, and um, they actually... It was, a, it was a tribute and a really nice one. I, 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 I never mind when people tribute me as long as they're upfront about it. And, you know, one of the reasons I... I Kevin Smith is so awesome is because he cheerfully plundered things like Good Omens and, and Sandman um, for oh god I forgot this, the name of the movie what was the, the, the yes. angelly one Dogma. Dogma of course thank you um, for Dogma and he thanked me at the end on the credits and I thought awesome He's like great. Him. Kevin's one of those guys that just like if he likes you, he just wants everyone to win, and yeah. he he thinks there's room. I mean, I fucking love Kevin Smith. He's a he's but, a sweetheart. And you know, so I, I love the people who are willing to just sort of you can rip me up as much as you like if you say yeah, and I got that from Neil because I figure that the moment that I've written something, the moment I put something out into the public domain, it belongs to the world. Well, and then you won't mind that I'm uh, releasing Chris Hardwick's United States Demigods, uh, inspired by Neil Gaiman. I'm very much looking forward to it, especially if there is a god called Hodgman who turns up in the, yes! middle, of, you know, in the middle of sentences or perhaps... No, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. This is a very interesting philosophical Hodgman question. Hodgman, uh, uh, God or the devil? Is he, is he pure good or is he pure evil? Or is he neutral? Ah, uh, you see, this is where you make your fundamental mistake, Grasshopper. <laughs> um, let us go back to the, the ancient Hodgmanist koan if you see hodgman on the road kill him 
And I think what they were trying to say <laughs> is that we will all see Hodgman on the road because Hodgman lives within each one of us. Every time somebody says, I'm a Mac and I'm a PC, mm-hmm. Hodgman will be there. Mm-hmm. Every time you, you walk into a huge building and you see a hastily scrawled hobo sign <laughs> mm-hmm. on the door letting you know that someone on the third floor will give you food in a shower. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hodgman is there with you. And every time you turn on The Daily Show and Hodgman's not on, Hodgman is still there with us in, in some kind of spirit informing The Daily Show. Just as Hodgman is here with us right now, I might be Hodgman. You, you, Chris, might possibly be Hodgman if you grew a mustache. That's um, right, which I can't do very well. No, I can't either. I can't do a Hodgman mustache. I know you have to go in a second. I just want to ask you one more question because as one of the great writers in our culture and also someone who worked with alan moore and and i know we have a lot of we have a lot of people who are writers or creators who who listen to the podcast just is there any way to sort of encapsulate um you know is uh, a little bit of your writing process or something that you learned or things that you think are important you know when you constantly get that question from people at cons like i am a young writer and do you have any advice what do i do i mean i know it's an impossible question answer one but but it's one that i get asked all the time do you do you do do you write every day or do you just write when you're inspired or what's what's what have you what have you learned well if you only write when you're inspired you may be a fairly decent poet but you will never be a novelist because um you're gonna have to make your word count each day and those words aren't gonna wait for for you whether you're inspired or not so you have to write when you're not inspired and you have to write the scenes that don't inspire you and the weird thing is that six months later a year later you'll look back at them and you can't remember which scenes you wrote when you were inspired and which scenes you just wrote because they had to be written next where the process of writing can be magical. It can, there, are, there are times when you step out of an upper floor window and you just walk across thin air and it's, it's absolute and utter happiness. Mostly it's a process of putting one word after another. It, it's like out in, in the Peak District in England um, and up in Scotland, there, there are people who make dry stone walls and they've been making dry stone walls for generations. And the way they make these, these dry stone walls is they have lots and lots of rocks and they put one down and then they put another one down that fits and they put another one down that fits and they put another and they know how to do it. And somehow they create these walls that are absolutely stable. And they put just by putting one rock down after another and eventually you have a wall. And that's how you make a novel. You put one word after another and then you repeat. Um, so when people come to me and they say, I want to be a writer, what should I do? I say, you have to write. <laughs> and sometimes they say, well, I'm already doing that. What else should I do? And I say, you have to finish things. Yes. Because that's where you learn from. You know, you learn by, by finishing things. If there's other advice, there's, there's so much advice you can give, you know, young writers, particularly writers who want to work within a certain genre, because you can say, look, Read within that genre to understand what people are doing, but then go and read outside your comfort zone. If you love, if you love a certain kind of movie and you want to make Hollywood action thrillers, go watch other kinds of movies. Watch documentaries. Watch 
arty foreign cross-pollinating the creative process go, yeah go go see the other stuff find everything you can if you like books and you like fantasy and you want to be the next tolkien don't read big tolkien-esque fantasies tolkien didn't read big tolkien-esque fantasies he read books on on finnish philology and, <laughs> and you know and that's you go and you read outside your comfort zone go and learn stuff hit primary sources and then the most important thing for anyone once they get any kind of level of quality at the point where you're ready to write and you can write is tell your story don't try and tell the stories that other people can tell because any starting writer will you always start out with other people's voices you've you've been reading other people for years you're going to tell the kinds of things that you've been doing but as quickly as you can start telling the stories that only you can tell because there will always be better writers than you and there'll always be smarter writers than you and there'll always be you know people who are much better at doing this or doing that but you are the only you you know tarantino is you can criticize everything that quentin does but nobody writes tarantino stuff like tarantino he is the best tarantino writer there is and that was actually the thing that people responded to they're going this is an individual writing with his own point of view well that's and i think that's excellent advice for any creative endeavor and it's very and that's you know bill hicks set a version of you know just work on your own voice because then you've cornered that market yeah exactly there will always be people out there who are there are better writers than me out there there are smarter writers there are people who can plot better there's all of those kind of things but there's nobody who can write in your game and story like i can and how do you break through the wall you know like the wall you're sitting down and you're like i know i have to put one word in front of the other but i can that there i can actually see a fucking brick wall in front of my eyes because for me it's always been a process of trying to convince myself that what i'm doing in a first draft isn't important I remember the incredible liberation of the point that I moved from typewriter to computer because I was no longer making paper dirty. It was just sort of notional. It was like imaginary. I was writing these words, but they didn't matter. And then a decade after that, I remember the, the liberation again of suddenly going, I could write in notebooks because it isn't real until I put it, I keyboard it. Mm -hmm. And I still, actually, one of the things that I still do over and over is just write in notebooks, get, you know, big old moleskins and things, or, and just, just handwrite, because it's, it's not real. Um, but one way you get through the wall is just by convincing yourself that, that it doesn't matter. Nobody's ever going to see your first draft. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares about your first draft. And that's the thing that you may be agonizing over, but honestly whatever you're doing can be fixed and you can fix it tomorrow you can fix it next week for now just get the words out get the story down however you can get it down and then fix it well neil gaiman uh you have been an incredible guest uh this was a wonderful nerd fantasy for me and uh and thank you for being you know thanks for making time for us i know your your schedule's been tight out here but uh and thank you uh to your assistant cat are you okay you were coughing a little bit earlier oh. everything okay yeah. All right, great. You look you look fine. Like oh, you had a hairball. 
She's cat. She must have had a head. Nice. Thank you. Uh, but thank you so much for being here. Also, uh, you know, I just I'd want to throw out the American Gods 10th anniversary is uh, edition is out. Uh, yes, you uh, should now. buy it. Whoever you are listening to this, <laughs> please buy it. Um, please buy it. Any, anything else uh, come uh, on the horizon anytime soon? Um, there's loads of things on the horizon, but I can never remember what they are. I should I should have a sort of. Yeah, list we'll follow of you on Twitter. Plug. Neil yeah. himself at Neil himself. I, I was going to say pl- follow me at Neil himself and uh, and go and you know buy my wife's music and yes make her happy i love the video for map of tasmania ps <laughs> fucking great fucking great that was i th- i think that is the best use of a merkin in any video ever <laughs> and, and it's on the, my it's on my phone the thing that made me peculiarly happiest about the map of tasmania video and i actually kind of i have to say i kind of like um perez hilton he's always said very nice things about me uh-huh. and stuff but but i was sent the link to his comments on the map of tasmania video which were Basically, you know, somebody going, ah, girly stuff. Ah, this is horrible. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. And I thought, you know, it's just that thing of girls with bird's nest merkins and, and merkins of the scream and weird dangly forests. Oh, there's like a there's like a Dumbledore beard in the video. of <laughs> It's amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here. And then, uh, you know, when I'm in Minneapolis per- performing, I'd love to, uh, you know, please let's grab a coffee or something i would love that oh thank you so much neil gaiman uh matt and jonah were here nick was uh, silently in the background working on his computer uh, he just waved and uh that's it enjoy your burrito everyone that was awesome now leaving nerdist.com enjoy your burrito 